Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with the world's best Magic the Gathering players. I'm your host, James Sue. With every episode, the goal is to understand what drives my guests to be at their best and to understand their competitive mindset. My hope is that you'll gain a deeper appreciation for the transformative power of the game. To listen to past episodes, visit humansofmagic.com, where you'll also find select chat transcripts with past guests. And look for Humans of Magic on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a review. Now, for those of you who listen to the show, it's no secret that I'm a big fan of the legacy format. And today I'm sitting down with two of the biggest names in the format ever since it was called 1.5. Alex and Jesse Hatfield have had a huge impact on this evergreen format. They created and refined several deck archetypes that continue to influence how players approach the legacy metagame. In this wide-ranging interview, we talk about the evolution of decks and much, much more. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to go back and explore the one-on-one conversations I've had with folks like Damon Whitby, Dan Cinarini, Bob Huang, Caleb Dorward, Wilson Hunter, Jarvis Yu, Bryant Cook, Noah Walker, and others. All of these players have had major contributions to the legacy format, and it's a lot of fun to get their perspectives. With that out of the way, it's time to talk to Alex and Jesse Hatfield. So today I am here with Alex and Jesse Hatfield. These two players need almost no introduction because they are legends in the legacy format, or 1.5 as it used to be called. I consider them to be the godfathers of legacy. They have an illustrious career in history with the game. Alex and Jesse, how are you guys doing? Doing great. How are you? Super excited and also super nervous because I, there's so much I want to ask you and I'm really concerned about messing it up. As I understand it, you guys are not in the public sphere all that much. And so getting an interview with you guys is truly a privilege. So I'm, I'm very excited is my answer. <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, uh, I'm excited to be here as well. And uh, we've wanted to do this with you for a while. So appreciate the uh, opportunity. Honored to be asked. Yeah. I've seen you guys on camera. You guys seem to rock a very similar look, sometimes with the hats, or maybe just one of you. I, my memory is a little bit hazy. So are you guys actually twins is my first icebreaker question. <laughs> no, so uh, I'm Alex. I'm the older one. I'm four years older than Jesse. We're actually only half brothers, uh, technically, but uh, we grew up together. So I never really thought about Jesse that way. But I honestly, <laughs> I think it's always funny. I've heard that we look similar. Some people think that. I, I don't I don't know that that's the case. But um, And other people say, wow, you guys are brothers. You look nothing alike. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. No, but Jesse has been my best friend for all my life. So uh, that's why Likewise. we um, yeah, did so much magic together. Yeah, I noticed in the past when you guys had the article series, like too much information. Is this kind of mysterious aura about you guys? Or maybe I'm just putting too much into it where you know the avatar on star city where you guys have the article it shows the two of you together and it's not like your names individually it's it's always alex and jesse hatfield or jesse and alex hatfield so i thought i just have this weird 
mental image in my mind that you guys are identical and you guys are complete each other's sentences and you know all that <laughs> stuff i don't know maybe i'm putting too much into it i guess i am <laughs> yeah i don't know just you think uh i think maybe if i've ever con- finished his sentences for him he'd get really annoyed <laughs> uh, sometimes we'll say basically the same thing at the same time or we'll repeat each other's sentences uh, not usually complete them in like a helpful way <laughs> <laughs> Before talking to you guys, I had talked to Parcher, Damon Whitby, a little bit. You know, he's a very well-known legacy player as well. He's one of the masters of Dredge. And I remember talking to him before and him saying that you guys have had some legendary, like several hours of debate about certain cards where you guys would be so exact about, you know, should I be running Pyroblast over Red Elemental Blast or something like that? I just wanted to ask you guys, what do you guys remember to be some of the longest and most detailed discussions you guys have ever had about certain cards? Maybe just pick one example each. Maybe we can start with, with Alex and then Jesse. Well, the uh, the Stifle Beb one is the one that got us that reputation, I think. You know, what it was, it was a sideboard card in our threshold decks, and we were preparing for a tournament. And uh, I think we started the conversation in the car, and we had hammered out most of the 75 but we're trying to decide on the last couple of slots, which we knew we wanted it to be a sideboard card against goblins, but couldn't decide between Stifle and, and Beb. So, you know, we hammered it out and, and discussed it for, I think, several hours. I think we may have kept up some of the people in the hotel room with us that night. <laughs> That's why it became a, a, a bit of a joke. So Beb is uh, Blue Elemental Blast, right, for goblins? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And this would have been, when when did we decide that was, Jesse? That was, uh, I'm sure it must have been sometime around 2006. I don't yeah. know. Uh, I think that was when that matchup was basically the most important matchup of the format. Yeah, the Threshold know. versus Goblins matchup. And both Stifle and, and Blue Elemental Blast are very good in the, in, against Goblins, but you know, I think we were trying to decide which was better and which ones had had other applications across the format. And I think uh, the the reason that we became known for these discussions is because Jesse and I have, you know, we don't always play the same deck, but generally we try to, and we try to come to a, an agreement on what deck we think is the best deck to play in a tournament and then come to an agreement on the 75. And that's one thing that you can do when you've got somebody else who's also working on the exact same deck is you can try to, really drill down on the details because they're just as invested as you are in coming up with the optimal solution. I mean, there's nobody else in that group of friends that weekend who's going to be really interested in having an in-depth discussion about the 13th, 14th, and 15th slot in my sideboard, you know, other than Jesse, who's also going to have the cards in his sideboard. So I, uh, and I think it's always, or almost always useful to have multiple people working on the same problem. And, you know, I'm not going to say we always come to the right conclusion but i think it's beneficial it's been beneficial to me to be able to discuss the details like that and that's why we would have those conversations i see and so essentially you guys are always trying to figure out the best 75 together and that leads to a lot of discussion or discourse is that right yeah i'd I'd Uh, say that's right i mean some of it's just indecisiveness but but yeah a lot of it is, is the fact that when you've got two people working on the same problem who are enough on the same page that, that you can have a really in-depth, productive discussion, but still different enough that you can bounce ideas off of each other and, and I don't know, uh, 
come up with different angles and, uh, and different thoughts about it that uh, it can it can go on for a while. And what was the final card that you guys decided on? <laughs> we can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's just about the process, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and to be fair, I think the fact that we uh, talked about it for hours and hours was of much more interest to our friends at the time than it was to us because that was our normal uh, normal mode. <laughs> I see. And Jesse, do you have the same memory of that being the longest discussion? Have you also had other discussions with Alex that... Uh, were also legendary in your mind or very time consuming or was it every discussion i don't know just want to get your take uh, it, it's closer to every discussion I, I don't not a lot of them really stick out to me specifically that one definitely became a, a meme among our uh, community but uh i mean we still do it to this day i think we spent a good part of the car ride up to eternal weekend debating over those last slots in the zoo sideboard like how do we really want to handle miracles do we need x or x plus one cards in the sideboard for that purpose anyway how can we make this slot overlap with that one but uh yeah and 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 with the stifle and bed thing that was during a period of time where almost every tournament we were playing some kind of threshold deck and it really was just down to what minor card choices do you want to make this time to deal with what you think the metagame has become Uh, and so we would have to sort of relitigate the sideboard at least and, and some of the flex slots basically every time and do you guys consider yourselves perfectionists when it comes to this kind of thing? Um, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I, we try guess to so. be. Yeah. hard to say no after all that. I mean, I think we always want to get to a place where we can at least rationalize while we've made the decisions that we've made. You know, understand why we've made all the choices that we've made. I think we're aware of how imperfect every option is, uh, and so it's really hard to pick one. And I, I guess that's, that's sort of what a perception of perfectionist would do. Okay, so there's a lot of things that I want to ask you guys about your involvement in the community and the history of 1.5. But before we get into all that discussion, I wanted to first ask you about your backgrounds. So basically, I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, and just anything you want to tell me about where you're from. And uh, just let me know a little bit about who you are, basically. All right. I mean, I was born in Falls Church, Virginia, 1985, and then in uh, 88, uh, we moved to I, I moved to California with my mother, and and she had just remarried. And we, we lived in San Diego in 89. Jesse was born, and we were in San Diego until we moved back in 92. I think we came back to Virginia and kind of grew up in Woodbridge, Virginia. Childhood wasn't too interesting, really. <laughs> I had a, a pretty nice, pretty nice childhood. You know, I'm blessed with a stable home and caring parents, and never really wanted for much. That's pretty much my take on that. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't really have a whole lot to add. I was, I was born out there in California, but uh, we moved over here to Virginia basically within a couple of years. So that's uh, most of what I remember of childhood is, is growing up there in Woodbridge, uh, sort of uh, spending a lot of time together. So we're going to have a lot of the same memories probably of all that, but. Yeah, fairly, a fairly good childhood, I'd say. What was it like in Woodbridge? I, I've never been there, so what, what's it like, the surroundings, and what kind of things did you guys do when you were young? Uh, it's, I mean, it's a suburb, right? It's um, a suburb of Washington, D.C. It's about, what, 20 or 30 minutes south of Washington, D.C. If there's no traffic, but there's always traffic, so it's like an hour, an hour and a half south of D.C. And 
as a kid, um, we lived in a nice, you know, wooded neighborhood with single family homes. So I spent a lot of time playing outside, actually riding bikes around and actually remember hanging out with Jesse and, and we had kind of a neighborhood group of friends that we would hang out with. Yeah, it was pretty nice. We went to school there in the county and I mean, there are parts of Woodridge that are a little bit rougher, I suppose, but we were in just a very typical suburban area and again, nothing of nothing too dramatic ever really happened. <laughs> nice and peaceful. That's That's good, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Nothing much to interesting about it really in my opinion and uh when did you guys actually start to get into games i would have to assume that magic was probably not the first game you guys played it, did you guys have a a habit or a culture of playing games at home or with your friends i uh, no, not really so this was um i mean it's kind of my fault i remember so i was in boy scouts and uh it was at a Boy Scout summer camp of all places that I like kind of first encountered magic cards. And, um, this was when I was in middle school and I liked the look of the cards. I didn't really understand the game very well, but I, I was, you know, friends with a couple of folks who kind of sort of did. And we started picking up cards. Then this was in, um, I think it was like 90, 98 or 99, you know, and, and Ur- Urza's had just come out. I think Urza's saga, Urza's legacy. And um, Jesse sort of joined me in that, you know, but we we were only casually playing and collecting. I think we did that for a year or two, and then I put it down for a couple of years when I started high school, but then found a group of people who were playing in high school and uh, didn't end up playing in a magic tournament until I think it was senior year when uh, when one of my friends who, you know, was going to the, the local store to play said, hey, come up on a Friday night and, and draft. It'll be fun. And actually got Jesse to come with me, and the two of us started drafting. We drafted for a couple of weeks, and then uh, somebody was like, why don't you come and play a 1.5 tournament tomorrow on Saturday? And we uh, we kind of did that, stopped drafting, and never looked back. <laughs> what were your initial impressions of the game? Like, Did you have any favorite cards or decks or interactions that you can remember when you started around Urza Saga? Jesse, what do you think? Ah, gosh. Um, I don't know. Yeah, we definitely had our favorite things, uh, whatever they were at the time. I I, I guess I have to agree that there was like the look of the cards and everything that sort of drew me to it. But also part of it was just, hey, Alex is doing this this new cool thing. I want to be involved. But yeah, I I think it was actually fairly early on that I uh, developed uh, an affinity for Enchantress, which uh, would last a long time. But back then, as a kid, it was like just you know, the silliest sort of kitchen table stuff. Uh, I had some some mono green deck involving a bunch of uh, pile of ancestral masks and whatever. I make huge <laughs> dudes and attack with them. Didn't win a whole lot of games with that. But uh, at some point I collected griffins, which you know, is kind of a boring thing to collect, really. They're all four mana tutus. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. Looking at them through an adult lens, I like it. Yeah. What about for you, Alex? What were some of your most, what were your favorite cards back then or decks or interactions? Yeah, so I, I definitely had a binder of drakes because, uh, you know, I had a binder of dragons, but dragons were kind of expensive to uh, a middle schooler. So I also collected drakes, which were like the next best thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's always interesting to me, at least, because people always have their pet decks when they get started. And I also wanted to ask, 
I mean, obviously, you guys were playing it together with your friends, and there was a kind of social aspect to it. But was there something that really stood out to you guys in terms of the game itself that made you want to keep playing, at least up to the point before you discovered 1.5? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was for me. It was definitely the flavor. I think, uh, you know, to be honest, as a kid, I, I don't think I had that much exposure to you know high fantasy. Um, I didn't you know read a whole lot of Tolkien or anything like that. So, uh, I really the artwork and just the the themes and the cards was really interesting to me, and the fact that there were so many of them out there already at that time. It was it was really all flavor driven for me, and the fact that it was a game was so secondary. Uh, until much later when I discovered how enjoyable that part was. There, there was, um, I think to the extent that I did care about mechanics back then, it would have just been the mechanic of building a deck and like finding new cool cards to put in it. And we did a lot of leafing through common boxes at our local store and things like that, which was always just fun to try to discover things. Yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. Like the excitement of finding something cool and then actually using it in, in some sense, which, you know, just collecting like anything that was a pure collectible doesn't have that aspect. Yeah, it definitely harkens back to the more pure sense of magic before the internet and all that stuff. I mean, I started just personally a little bit about myself. I started playing with my brother around revised edition and it was, I think it was 93 or 94 and we were complete casuals. We would only play starter decks against each other for anti. I remember <laughs> actually <laughs> winning cards back and forth. That was pretty cool. And I remember back then feeling like this is really cool because when a new set came out, you had no idea what cards were in it. And you would also see people at school playing a certain card. And be, you'd be like, yeah, that's a really cool card. And you, you couldn't go online and just buy four copies of the card, right? So it was there was a whole discovery process that's basically completely gone in today's magic yeah wow no that's um i think you definitely experienced more of that in the pure sense than we did that's <laughs> that's pretty wild yeah and for some reason i just thought you guys had played magic since the very beginning because you guys are so entrenched in the lore of 1.5 and legacy when you guys said that you started in 98 or 99 i was just blown away you know <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I thought you guys were like, you know, playing Alpha back in the day or something. No, not quite. Not quite. And like I said, we didn't play our first tournament until 2002. Well, that's not true. I guess we played pre-releases. We did play in pre-releases all the way back in uh, like Urza's or maybe Masks. Maybe Masks was our first. Mm. Yeah. Right, right. But that's more of a casual level, right? Because pre-releases yeah. are just like, yeah. it's fine, you show up, right? So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cool. So I guess fast-tracking to how you guys discovered 1.5. That's always been a question in my mind is you guys are so instrumental to the development of the format. How did you first discover it? You said a friend introduced you guys and said, hey, play in this 1.5 tournament. Is that right? Uh, yeah, essentially. A friend of mine from high school named Michael Turpin, he, he was playing. He was he was much uh, he was, he was into competitive magic earlier than I was. And uh, he was the one who brought us out to to play draft on. I guess it was. I guess it was Friday nights. I think I don't know. If Friday night magic actually existed yet, but it was Friday night drafts. And then we found out that there was a constructed tournament the next day. And I think I think constructed appealed more to us. You know, as Jesse said, the idea of building decks has always been kind of intrinsic to what was attractive 
in Magic. And uh, we would have, I think, rather played Vintage uh, or Type 1 at the time because we had this notion of wanting to play the most powerful decks with the least restricted card pool. Um, but that wasn't you know, supported in the area we were in. The store that we were going to just happened to have this 1.5 community. And I don't know, it might have been the pretty much the only one in the country almost at that time. But sort of just lucked into playing 1.5 instead of Type 1 or any other format. But, uh, yeah. Do you guys have any idea why that store supported 1.5? Was it something with the owner or the organizer taking a chance on the format? Like, just wanted to know how the how that came about. It sounds very serendipitous that it happened. So, Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought to, to ask that question, really. It was already well established at that point when we came in. I mean, they were holding 30 to 40 person tournaments every Saturday. Um, $2 entry. Uh, <laughs> a bunch of little wow. kids crammed into a, a little shack, basically. <laughs> yeah, those those of the folks out there that have been to the Lucky Frog in, in Annandale, Virginia, will remember it was, uh, it was a pretty wild little store. It was a tiny little building. It was run by a great guy named Dan Grandin. And, um, you know, we... I don't know how he got so many people to show up and, and cram themselves into this little space. I mean, usually we had to set up tables and play outside. There just wasn't enough space inside. But it really was genesis of of, of our magic hobby, you know, as it exists today. And do you guys remember what your first 1.5 tournament was like? What kind of decks did you show up with? And how did you guys do in that first first run? <laughs> well, I can, I can definitely talk about that. Jesse, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure my first deck would have been, uh, I would have graduated graduated to a, an Oratog-based Enchantress deck at this point, and I did relatively terribly for a while. That sick Rancor recursion. Yeah, it was very nice. Well, it's an enchantment, so there you go. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was playing, like, Dead Guy Red um, Sly with Jackalbubs and Fire Slingers and Goblin Vandal. And uh, I remember that pretty distinctly because, you know, I think it was for my first constructed tournament ever, it was a reasonably built deck. But uh, one of my first matches was against Classic Parfait. If, if anyone remembers what Parfait was, it was based on the Vintage deck, but it was Landtax, uh, Scroll Rack, and Ivory Tower. <laughs> and this being uh, the, the metagame as it was, with a lot of, you know, younger children playing aggressive burn-based decks because that's what they could afford. Uh, he definitely had main deck, Root of Protection Red, and destroyed me quite handily. I remember he had Zoran Orb along with Planar Rebirth, which is a pretty good combo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's that was pretty memorable for me. I remember that match quite, quite well. But having said that, there must have been a lot of losing when you first start playing in tournaments of any kind. Right. So what kept you guys going back to it? Like if you get beat down really hard by a parfait deck or something, what made you want to keep at it as opposed to just saying this game is stupid. I'm going to go back to playing draft or going back to playing casual games. <laughs> I don't think we were winning the drafts every week either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Jess? Was it just enough success or was it the excitement of, of what we could try bringing next week? I don't really remember, honestly. Um, I, I don't think there was much success uh, on my side as, at, at like thirteen there. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember hating it, uh, regardless of how much 
how, how little we did well. I, I don't know. I mean, some of it was actually kind of cool to see those decks that we had sort of read about online since we, we did sort of, this was, uh, I guess, a little bit after the internet exploded and we had done a, a good amount of, of reading about decks, probably more vintage decks at that point. But so we recognized Parfait, we knew what it was. It was kind of cool to see it in, act, in action. Mm-hmm. And just same with a bunch of other decks. Uh, and I mean, not know. enough could be said probably about the the community itself and how welcoming folks were. I mean, when when I got beaten by by Parfait, I think the guy's name was uh, John Papadopoulos, and he was, you know, a legitimately nice guy, and it was just you know, it was enjoyable to play against him even while he was beating me. And uh, in general, I think most of the community there was you know friendly, welcoming, and uh, it made it fun, even if you weren't winning. That's pretty important. Because there are no sore winners, that makes it better for you or easier for you guys to keep keep at it, right? Because I always hear these days there's all these stories about people being jerks, and it sounded like the Lucky Frog was nothing of that sort, right? Yeah, I think the people that were toxic were not, they weren't tolerated there. <laughs> and that goes back to Dan and the culture that he created there, I think. Yeah, I see. And so how long did you guys play at that store until you were winning more than you were losing? I expected that I expect that it's a process, right? I mean, just give me an idea. Was it did you guys go every week and then after a few months you guys became winning players? Did you go for years? I'm just trying to get a sense as to kind of the timeline. I'm really not sure about the timeline. We definitely were going just about every week. There was actually another uh, smaller store in, nearby that was also doing two, $2 legacy tournaments on Fridays. So a lot of times we were doing two tournaments a week. So we, so we did rack up a lot of uh, experience, I guess. But I don't mm-hmm. know how long it actually took before we were uh, any kind of decent. I mean, I think for me, the winning and, and actually winning you know, credit or, or winning the tournaments there, I don't know that that was ever something that we did very consistently. What, what I remember really enjoying is being able to, you know, tweak decks every week. If you wanted to play the deck you played last week, you would change something about it to make it better against what people were playing there last week. And, you know, something like that can pan out for you. You can get that matchup and you can see your changes take effect and work. And, and that would feel like a win, even if you didn't necessarily win the tournament. And so I think as, as soon as we had a, a collection that was large enough that we were able to, you know, change things about our decks week to week and, and switch decks occasionally and then, you know, work towards building something new that we were excited about playing. Like, all of those things just made it exciting to, to keep going back and keep playing. I mean, the format was so, you know, it was relatively unexplored at the time and there was still so much of it that, that Jesse and I hadn't experienced, even if other people had already played those decks. For us to be able to build them and play them was fun. So I think that's what did it for me. So I'm just wondering, the way you guys described that each of you had your your decks uh did you stay with these decks for a while and just tweak them or did you start to play different decks entirely week week by week uh like i'm just wondering to what extent did you guys actually tinker with the decks and and revise them well i I, there was definitely a long period of time for me where i was playing uh enchanters decks but sometime in the middle of their uh enchanters actually sort of became at least okay, uh, largely based on the work by uh, our friend Matt Elgin. He, he basically was behind the uh, even the modern incarnations of uh, Solitaire now, this, this blue-green-white Solitaire confinement Enchanter's Engine thing. Because I, I distinctly remember 
having that as my only deck for a long time to the point where between me and Matt, uh, people were just sideboarding all kinds of ridiculous things to destroy solitary confinements. Like burn players were playing Apocalypse, which yeah. uh, people might not know what that is, but I believe it's like discard your hand and destroy, remove every permanent from the game or something. It was actually a really bad answer, but uh, they were just that that des- desperate. I, I don't know if I actually lost to an Apocalypse, though, because it leaves the burn player's hand empty and my hand full. So as long as I didn't play all the cards I need in my deck to win, uh, it's still fine. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I was on that for quite a while. What about for you, Alex? Uh, I was playing actually mono black decks for a long time. I so this is you know going back after playing the red deck, uh, I decided I wanted to build the Nether Void deck. Was it the Devil's Bile, created by a guy with the handle of Legend on the Mana Drain? This was a Type One deck, and uh, I wanted to build that, port it to Legacy, but I had to start with cheaper decks because Nether Voids were expensive. So I was actually on mono black Pox, and then. Mono Black Suicide, and then eventually Mono Black Nether Void for a long time. So definitely a lot of tweaking going on there. <clears throat> Nether Voids were very expensive. They were like thirty dollars or something. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Exorbitant. Yeah. Exorbitant. That's right. Yeah. Well, now you're speaking my language because I actually started playing Constructed Magic with Legacy, and this is way later. But I remember my first deck being Suicide Black, and I think so. I think what you were running probably somewhat inspired what I was running later on. So that's kind of cool, even even if it was many, many years later. So, Well, mine was definitely built on, again, the guy uh, Legend, who had done a lot of work on Mono Black and Vintage. He had also created a Sui Black list, and, and my list was based on that pretty heavily. But that was fun. I, yeah, you know, I neglected to mention uh, the... the the metagame there at the Frog and, and just the community there was shaped by... Uh, uh, a couple of kind of standout players, and, and one of the ones at the head of that, his name was Mark Perez, who was uh, part of a vintage team called the Paragons that, you know, were real influential, at least within the, the sort of Virginia and Washington, D.C. area. And they were, you know, also on the mana drain. But uh, Mark Perez was one of the ones that also had a soft spot for 1.5 and did a lot of work in the format. And so that's why, I mean, we were, we started off sort of, yeah, pouring over the mana drain and then eventually the source uh, when the source kind of split off of the mana drain. And that's where we were getting all of our early information. And Mark was just really good about, uh, I don't know, community building, talking to people about their decks, giving them advice. I think having him there made us all a little bit better. Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, he's also, one of those guys who could probably outplay anybody at the store almost, and then but be totally nice about it and then explain to them, you know, how to get better. He liked playing uh, whatever fun decks that, that he could uh, bring, but it in a well-built sort of way. So he was also probably some of our first exposure to a bunch of things. Like uh, he might have been, the f- playing against him might have been the first time I actually saw a, a Miracle Grow deck in a tournament. Uh, and that was really fun. And that would oh, yeah. ev- eventually become my favorite deck. Mark sounds like an awesome guy. And it sounds yeah. like you guys learned a lot from him and his attitude. Were there other people in that community at the time, Lucky Frog or other, that really made a mark on the metagame or the or the community? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess Mark's. So Mark was friends with John Papadopoulos and uh, Matt Gronks and John Avila and Brian DeGia as well. I think they were all friends, and I mean that's the that they were sort of the core. I think group of just community building 
guys. They they all had big collections and they would, you know, play different things and yeah, to expose people to different decks and different ideas. Would you guys say that those are the people that you learned the most from as legacy or 1.5 players or were there other friends that you made that sort of helped you guys level up as well? Uh, well, those guys were pretty influential, but there, there were also quite a few people closer to our level that were kind of learning simultaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I don't know, I don't know how many names we could rattle off if we, if we thought about it, but uh, I don't know, this probably would have been about the time we met uh, Anwar Ahmad, who's still kind of a, kind of a fixture in legacy shows up every once in a while to make a cool new deck yeah he's sort of the, the secret <laughs> yeah. like uh the, the the secret genesis of a lot of important legacy decks over the years uh, but we've also got people like uh david gearhart who was involved with solid basically responsible for solidarity uh we've got uh ian mckinnis who was uh, who essentially popularized popularized threshold and legacy sort of putting up the first tournament win since after the format changed Tons of people, really. Yeah, I mean, you already mentioned Matt Elgin with uh, Enchantress. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and his uh, brother Jack Elgin was there. He's uh, designed any number of white-based control decks over the years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. These are names that I, I recognize. And Anwar is somebody that's made a huge impact to me because when I started playing Legacy many, many years later, I was reading up on his uh, Red Death and Eva Green primers and yeah there you go that was the first time i ever realized how expensive magic could be because i had <laughs> gone back into magic i was playing tournaments for the first time and just like you guys i happened to get into a legacy tournament as opposed to going to standard or something this is around 2008 so it was much later i think time spiral had come out or something like that and i remember well first of all i remember uh buying Plague Slivers, because I really liked Juzan Jins back in the day, but now I realize, <laughs> wow, I could get this card, it was only 50 cents, and then I realized much uh, fairly quickly, too, that it wasn't as good anymore, but uh, it was cool to play with uh, the functional reprint, and then I had an all-black deck, I played Nantuko Shades, and I remember, like, after my first Legacy tournament, I was doing some reading online, and that's when I came, I stumbled upon Anwar's stuff. And I realized, wow, I need to splash green. And then that's when I had to buy dual lands and fetch lands. And, oh, and, yeah. and then the rest is history. Then I realized, wow, Tarmogoyf is a really good card. I, I started trading my old collection of duels towards Tarmogoyfs. And I'm just rambling here, but it, just hearing Anwar's name uh, is really cool. I, I really do want <laughs> to, to meet him as well sometime because, yeah, that, that, was, that was the archetype I was playing, so... And yeah, he's done a ton of work on it. I mean, he, um, yeah, Red Death was, you know, far before Eva Green, but he's sort of gone back to it. He, he's had Mono Black Suicide as well. I played a Mono Black Suicide list of his at, um, I guess it was my first Gen Con legacy tournament back in like 2005, mm -hmm. um, you know, with like Rotting Giants, et cetera. And it was his list, you know, he'd created this list and I'd been playing it and it was really good. Even back in the 1.5 days, he worked with us on that Pox deck, which actually ended up being surprisingly good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Though nobody really believed us about that. <laughs> 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 and in case we don't get to this later, Anwar did also basically build the Time Spiral deck, if, if people don't know that. Oh, very cool. Yeah, when I played uh, the High Tide deck in Edison, I was actually playing with Anwar's cards. He just gave me the 75-card deck, and I took it with me and played it. 
Oh, cool. It was literally his cards. Yeah, yeah. That's why two of the islands don't match. I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> the guys that you just described, like Anwar, Ian, did they come up or quote unquote come up and start playing 1.5 around the same times you guys did? Or was it later? Was it around the same time? Was it slightly before? It's all in that time range, right? Uh, yeah, in the sense of, you know, play competitively. I mean, like in in the case of Anwar, I think Anwar actually did play Magic back in like 93, 94, but he'd sort of dropped off with it. He'd never really played competitively. And then he sort of rediscovered it around the same time that Jesse and I were playing uh, for the first time. So, you know, in his case, yes and no. I think Ian, I think I think the answer for Ian would be yes. You know, he started playing competitively around the same time. Uh, most of these other guys, yeah. Most of the and, other uh, guys we named were going to the frog just a, at least a little bit before we were. Yeah. And this is the Virginia community, but I know that it's not just about Virginia or Northern Virginia. There's also upstate New York. So tell me a little bit about how these communities come together and how they're innovating in their different ways. Who are the key people? What were some of the innovations? What are some of the stories you remember? And, and maybe even also like the player base size, because these areas are legendary in my mind. But I, I never have a good sense of exactly how many active players there are, week in and week out. Just describe like in general what it's like, the Northern Virginia and upstate New York legacy communities. Well, the New York community, um, yeah, we wouldn't be the best source of like firsthand information on them. But what we found is that when we were on and again, this is the manor drain and then the, the source, the 1.5 forum uh, website. We started you know, going on there and, and reading and posting. And the, <clears throat> the New York, upstate New York guys were actually running, you know, they, they were one of the other few other communities that actually had a, a regular legacy scene. And uh, they actually would put together somewhat large tournaments. You know, it's, it's funny to say this now because, I mean, we're talking about like 40 people. But you'd be a, it'd be a tournament where there'd be some you know twenty dollar entry and you'd actually win dual lands instead of just credit or something like that. <clears throat> and uh, there was a guy named Dave Amrod who would run them you know on a sort of a semi regular basis, uh, as well as a store up there, like Altered States it was called, which would also run tournaments occasionally. And just being the the only other community that regularly contributed on the source. Uh, we thought it would be cool to meet up with them and to try to, you know, start traveling to each other's uh, area to play. And so we we traveled up to upstate New York once to go to we went to a tournament in Syracuse and we actually didn't we didn't let them know we were coming but we put together I think what do we have a van and another car or was it just the van? I'm trying to remember cars, I think just two cars yeah so we had like eight people go up and and kind of crash this tournament <laughs> you know. Um, and that was that was how we met them face to face. And uh, around what year was this? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it has to have been either oh three or oh four, I think, because it was in oh four that the lists were split, and this would have been a good deal before that. I think it was oh three because I still had my old uh, Ford. I hadn't, yeah, you know, right. my first car. I lost it on one of these trips because somebody rear-ended us while we were on sitting in traffic waiting to go out of state. But it wasn't the first trip. So, oh man. <laughs> Actually, they rear-ended the guy behind us, if I remember correctly. Just That's very right, yeah. hard. So the impact was so large that the car behind you also rear-ended you. Like it was a three-car, it was a pile-up kind of thing. It was actually four. Yeah, it pushed me into the car in front of us. 
thankfully everybody was okay. The guy in the very back, I think his his car ended up the worst of it, and the the truck in between us was probably fine. But my little escort, you know, it damaged the uh, the rear body panel badly enough. Even though we made it the rest of the trip <laughs> just fine, when I got it back, it was too expensive to repair, so they totaled it out. Yeah, and uh, we we went up out of state, and and that was the first of many of those trips. We would uh, end up doing that, you know, probably as as often as twice or like every two months maybe we try to go to a new york tournament and have between you know seven to 15 people go and in the meantime we'd be interacting on the source we all, we all sort of started posting there and sort of getting to know these guys would you say that there was some kind of rivalry or some kind of competitive aspect to it where you know if you guys are going over there you guys want to obviously do well for yourselves I imagine there must have been some competitive rivalry or something about like which group can do better. Is that fair to say? I think there was a little bit. It was yeah, a friendly rivalry. Yeah, well, it was very friendly. Like we would always, they would put us up at their homes and stuff. So they would, I don't know, everything was, you know, very positive. Yeah, and you know, shout out again to Ian McInnes. He was the first one to really reach out to the guys up there. Uh, and, and set that up because the first time we went up there, we just uh, stayed in a random campground, you know, on, in upstate New York, and showed up the next day. But the, the next time we went up there, Ian, uh, you know, reached out, and I think that was when we stayed with uh, Alex Zaransky and Kevin Garvey, right? They were living together, yeah. and we we crashed at their place, and they were gracious enough to put us up. And, and I mean, when I say put us up, I'm not just talking about Jesse and I. I'm talking about like two carfuls full of Virginians, some of whom were you know, more respectful than others, but <laughs> <laughs> we all had a good time and they let us do that, you know, sort of on a regular basis after that. So that, that helped to make that possible, especially given, you know, at the time I would have been 17, 18 years old. I was one of the older ones in the group. You know, we had Jesse who was four years younger and several people who were even younger than that, that would occasionally come. So, you know, money always being an issue that, that was really crucial to sort of keeping the, the two communities in close contact like that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And was there a distinctive metagame about New York that was different from that of Virginia? It's think, hard Jeff? to talk about the metagame when there were just so few people in general. Like, a serious metagame presence could be... Like, I could... At least I could have at the time. I'm not sure if I can remember them all now, but I probably could have named, like, exactly three people who owned Mishra's workshops. And they all happened to live in upstate New York uh, who were playing Legacy... Or who were playing 1.5 actively. And so, like, that's you can call that a metagame uh, if you want to. <laughs> like, you you don't really have to prepare for a workshop deck at the Lucky Frog, but you do if you're going to a major tournament in New York because it's not very many people. But if you're the only one playing workshops in the room, well, you, you might have to beat that guy if you want to win. Absolutely, it was a resource constraint. People played decks or cards because they owned those cards, right? It's not like today where everyone is trying to put together a deck or borrow cards so they can play Grixis Delver. That's that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah, much more so, yeah. More more so than now. So did the New York folks play in some Virginia tournaments as well, or did you, was it just more like you guys went up there to, to play and then come back? I think we got them to come down a couple of times. Uh, there was one trip they came down and then they got lost on the beltway that goes around DC. And I think they circled DC like, you know, two or three times and they, they vowed never to come down again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just giving them a hard time. They did. They came down a couple of times. Um, it was more often that we would make the trip up there, I think, because we were insane. But 
they did come down a few times. We didn't host the the major tournaments as often. Um, that and that came a little bit later, I guess. I guess it was Anwar again who uh, tried to get some some of those things going. Uh, That's it true. Was, it, it just turned out to be pretty hard to find a good venue and and, and just make it work. Yeah, Anwar hosted a couple of tournaments. Um, really, the only tournaments, the only legacy tournaments that we ever held in Northern Virginia were run by by Anwar and a couple of friends that helped him out with it. Because this is still a really awesome, tight-knit community. Tell me about how that evolved over the years into something larger, more competitive, more people involved, and SCG getting involved in it. I want to understand that a little bit because I missed out on that whole period of time. I never played Legacy until much later, as I said. So between 03 and the rest of that decade, what actually happened? Like, how, what, what did you guys see? What, you, what did you guys experience? Well, I, I think it might have been growing a little bit, but slowly during that period of time, I, I feel like we might have ended up, uh, especially with the source getting bigger, there, there ended up being a couple of uh, just slightly bigger tournaments in the New York area. We had like, I think we had some with like 60 or 70 people, which to us at the time felt huge. Um, but it didn't really take off until uh, after the uh, after the format was sort of overhauled in late 2004, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and even it, it took a little while after that. So um, people probably don't know this. Uh, a lot of people, um, type 1.5 didn't really have its own band list it was this very strange little format that all sets were legal but if anything was restricted in vintage it was banned in type 1.5 and uh, for a lot of cards that makes sense black lotus is banned and boxing are banned clarion um, academy's banned but uh, a lot of times it didn't really make sense uh, because certain cards just aren't that broken if you have zero copies of yagmoth's will in your deck uh, compared to having one like uh, like burning wish was restricted in, in vintage at one point and so all of us who were playing in legacy or in 1.5 sorry lost this card that was uh, completely fair uh, in, in 1.5 yeah. and and it, it was kind of funny that there were always calls to separate these lists and, and manage each format independently and they finally did in 2004 but they also made a, a, a huge set of, of bannings and non-bannings that uh, kind of blindsided all of us there was this period of of real uncertainty over the next like few months um, where people were just sort of playing whatever they felt like a, a lot of the old 1.5 players were uh, like fairly disgruntled about it i think a, a few people ended up quitting probably but not that many so it was ultimately able to grow i'm not sure exactly when people started holding tournaments there were probably yeah. a few moderately sized ones over the next year or so but i think it took about a year i think i think it was a exactly a year after that that there was the first legacy grand prix and that then that sort of signaled probably the, the things getting kicked off yeah i think so i think that grand prix philly uh was the start of, of legacy really hitting a growth period that eventually led to star city doing the opens and you know legacy growing even more uh, and yeah at the time we um a lot of us were upset because we'd been working in this tight-knit community and, and building this this format um for for quite a while and then they it all went away <laughs> but you know looking back on it of course hindsight is 2020 it was certainly certainly beneficial but uh yeah it was an interesting time we all thought that charbelcher was going to dominate because they had unbanned all the fast mana <laughs> but then that didn't happen it's funny how your perspective kind of changed and we, and we changes uh, or, or is 
from these different situations. We all thought it was crazy that they unbanned a lotus petal, you know. But uh, it turns out that really wasn't crazy. Well, at the time, did Wizards actually announce the rationale or reasoning behind why they did those unbannings? I think they posted something, like maybe with a little blurb about some of the cards, if not all of them. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think they did. I think, you know, the banning and unbanning, the, the list each card got, you know, two sentences or so, I think. But and I guess in, yeah. our, in our defense, some of them really were kind of silly. Like like land tax probably didn't need to be banned. They, they could have figured out maybe the replenish didn't need to be banned. I guess I was still playing Enchanters, so that's the one that I, that I was salty about. <laughs> but everybody had something. But did you guys get a sense for who is making the decision within Wizards? I don't know if it's a, a black box where you can't see into it, or did they actually have did they actually consult with 1.5 players, or it was just R&D just making a call? Uh, I think more the latter. It was kind of a black box. Um, a lot of people at the time, if I remember correctly, were saying, "Hey, this might be a good thing. This might mean this might be a sign that they're like preparing to support the format in the future, and they have to." make these changes in order to do it and, and that turned out to be kind of true i guess mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a big problem with uh well that is definitely a truth about wizards banned and restricted uh policies that they they don't it's not very transparent and and that causes strife I, I don't know if there's a better way to do it because obviously you can't announce what you're going to do well in advance that would cause other problems but yeah in this case it definitely felt like something that came out of the blue uh you know, I don't think anybody really had any inkling that it was going to happen, and if it was going to happen, that it was going to happen then. But, you know, again, I don't know if there's a better way to set that out. It's not... If they had said something a year beforehand, say, hey, the lists are going to split, you know, I don't... But, uh, no, to answer your question, I, not that I know of. I don't know of any, you know, discussions with community members or, you know, roundtables with, with, with Magic players outside of Wizards that they did leading up to that decision. And if if somebody does know something, you know, I'd be happy to be corrected. But okay, so if anything, it sounds like they're consistent. What what's happening today in today's metagame or banned restricted list is pretty much what it was uh, all those years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, I, I don't want to make it sound like I, I disagree with the list splitting. I mean, looking back on it, I'm really glad they did it because I've had an awful lot of fun playing Legacy, and I wouldn't really have it any other way. But at the time, it was a bitter pill. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's tough for anyone to accept change, right? Even if I look at myself, like, any kind of change, like, it's it's not familiar, right? So that's that's how I would approach it. Yeah, exactly. We did know that the, the format we had did actually have kind of an interesting metagame. Although I think it was starting to become clear that the Warchap decks were possibly too good compared to the others. Yeah, I think Trinisphere had just been printed, you know, within a year or so. and Crucible as well. Yeah, Crucible was the one that really made the deck stable enough to well it, it won a large-ish tournament i think that one was a 70 or 80 person tournament right the big arse it was called <laughs> um the big arse tournament yeah uh, up in new york and, you know some guy brought this mud deck which had previously not really been on too many people's radars and he uh won the whole thing and you know we proxied it and started testing it and we're like oh this is pretty silly you know this first turn trinosphere nonsense uh so yeah looking back i think that format probably was inherently broken we just didn't know it because of the card availability issues and the the relative lack of competitiveness you know there was still a lot of room so walk me through that guys the kind of from the 04 to 2010 period of time i mean how did legacy once legacy became legacy it was no longer 1.5 
how did the next couple of years go? How, how did it play out? And how did you guys actually end up finding the decks that you became well known for later on? Yeah, go ahead, Jess. I think you should probably talk about Threshold at this point. Yeah, I guess so. Um, so I guess at first there was... There wasn't really a whole lot to go with, but there were a few decks that were previously existing as sort of fringe decks or, or decks that existed with some of the recently banned cards that turned out to at least be able to exist without them. So uh, like Lance still adapted to the loss of Mana Drain, but but would never really be a very popular deck, which is, it would just sort of be hang out in most of the tournaments you'd find. Uh, goblins, it used to be Food Chain Goblins, but with Goblin Recruiter banned, it, it couldn't really do that. I, I, think, I think it may have ended up sort of going under the radar for a few months, but it ended up coming back in a big way in, in I think, uh, in combination with how, how well it was doing in Extended at the time. Yeah, Gob um, Vantage and Extended, I think, was ported, basically. Uh, and there were still these, like, fringe survival decks that still kind of existed. ATS, uh, uh, RGSA. <laughs> That's Angry Tradewind Survival and uh, Red Green Survival Advantage were the, the names of the survival decks. <laughs> hey, these were actually understandable names compared to some of the names we have today. So That's true, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, at some point, it was, it was just a matter of let's, let's build some decks uh, and see if they're good. So at one point, I don't even know how this started, really. We, we like sat down to build... A, we were like reading a, a lot of magic theory, and uh, there was this old, kind of silly in retrospect, concept of the metagame clock which posited that you could basically plot all the decks on like a circle and draw a line across it and say that, oh, decks over here tend to be good against the decks uh, uh, moving clockwise halfway around the circle and then tend to lose against the other half. Uh, and, and you would like arrange it via some sort of uh, like aggro control combo mid-range and at some point we had this idea that, oh, what if you were able to use some kind of transformational sideboard to, to switch between uh, like an aggro control deck and a mid-range deck, because those concepts seem almost kind of similar, uh, and they're at direct opposite positions in a metagame, so maybe you could beat everything. And, I mean, this just goes to show that you can get at good decks in the most roundabout kind of silly ways. Um, <laughs> but we brainstormed a little better about, like, what, what kind of deck would be able to do that? I mean, we want a deck that can play a small number of threats and protect them with counter magic or something, but then we also wanted that same deck to be able to play out with like sweepers and, and board control elements. Uh, and at some point we settled on uh, maybe you could use Miracle Grow to do both of those things or something like that. And uh, I believe at that point that was a deck I had had some experience with. It was basically my second real deck, I think, uh, because as I mentioned, with with everybody sideboarding against Enchanters all the time, at somewhere, uh, somewhere along the line I, I decided, okay, I need to build another deck. And I distinctly remember thinking, okay... What do I like about the deck I'm playing, and what do I dislike about the deck I'm playing? And can I do, can I come up with another deck from there? And I decided I like drawing cards, and I don't like uh, inconsistency, uh, which Enchanters definitely has huge problems with. So I was like, oh, I draw a lot of cards, but have like a relatively consistent deck. Uh, and I thought of Grow and decided to build it. And you had experience with it in Type One as well. Oh yeah, I guess so. Sort of. I mean, once, there was, yeah. Uh, Lamb Fan actually designed that deck called Bird Shit, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think I had played it in like a random vintage tournament they ran at the Frog for some reason. With uh, <laughs> must have been unlimited proxies, I guess, for that to, to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, I tinkered around with it a, a little bit. So, so anyway, we ended up deciding, wouldn't it be cool to make a grow deck that, that was like, you know, blue-green has some dazes and force of wills, uh, has some queer on dryads and 
yes, werebears probably at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. But then could sort of go bigger with things like Fledgling Dragon. Well, Mystic Enforcer with, was what we started with, right? I don't think so, because I think our, our, we, I think we very quickly settled on, if, if I want to play a deck with creatures and sweepers, you're right, yeah. uh, we want to play something like Pyroclasm yeah, uh, and right. big creatures. So, so we just built this blue-green-red grow deck that uh, had a decent amount of fat creatures in the main deck, but then would sideboard in a bunch of Pyroclasms and Flame Tongue Kavus uh, against creature decks. And regardless of the roundabout origin of it, it actually turned out to be really good. Oh, that tied together with like 17 cantrips or, or something ridiculous. Uh, so we were playing this was before all the good ones. So it was like brainstorm, sleight of hand, opt. Uh, maybe serum visions existed. Yeah, so like brainstorm, sleight of hand, serum visions. Serum visions was fifth dawn. It might have existed. Yeah, yeah, because fifth yeah, dawn was also crucible of worlds. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So is this uh, this? And, bef- do we have it without predict at one point? I might have played it once in a tournament with uh, accumulated knowledge instead, but uh, I remember you lobbying pretty hard for predict, and we tested it, and you turned out to be right. Predict is really good, and I, that was sort of my go-to deck for a while. Yeah, I don't remember exactly what you were playing at the time. I remember you. This might have been when you experimented with like uh, the more aggressive kind of zoo-style survival decks. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, glow riders and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh man, looking at one of those deck lists now, you'd really see the power creeping creatures. Yeah, but uh, that was yeah. <laughs> was this just a realization that threshold could be possible? It sounded like with the clock or the the mapping that you wanted to be good against all the decks. Like, I'm still trying to understand if this idea just came out of thin air, like you guys were just brewing, and and it just happened to really resonate in testing. Well, no, so. I mean, Threshold existed as an archetype before Legacy and, and outside of 1.5, right? In the back in the old extended days, Miracle Grow, and before that, Turbo Xerox. And I guess, you know, Jesse and I, maybe we didn't make this clear, we were pretty voracious as far as reading up on magic goes. I mean, this is in, in the heyday of the Star City articles. We would read all of them. You know, we would certainly, we were back on the, the old Dojo website, reading all of the old articles put up by Mike Flores and, uh, and all the other guys that wrote back then. You know Jamie Wakefield's old tournament reports, but the old theory articles were really the most interesting. And and I mean, I think didn't Comer write an article himself about Xerox and the theory behind it? Yeah. And I think that that was pretty influential to us. I mean, we read all that stuff, and mm-hmm. so we were aware of this as a concept of, of of a deck and of deck building, and that's where our discussion took us. So, you know, I don't know that we were the first person or first people to play. A threshold style deck in, in uh, legacy but that's, that's not, how we end up on uh, it you guys are essentially students of the game right like you, you're taking elements from other formats and theory and really for lack of a better term theory crafting that into what could be possible in legacy that's what it sounds like yeah that was the idea <laughs> that's what we were trying to do and we ultimately stumbled onto the fact that uh, we, this might be hard to hard to for people to believe now but but at that time like four fours for two that could tap for a green mana uh, if you wanted. Uh, and one ones for two that could get bigger were like amazing. They were easily going to be the best creatures on the board, unreasonably efficient, um, which uh, is, is no longer really the case. But uh, so it just turned out that if you're playing those guys, then that is going to give you uh, enough time and, and tempo that you can spend your additional mana on cantrips and that lets you run fewer lands. And, and it just all works together better than we could have hoped, really. Yeah, and Jesse, as you were working on the deck, 
obviously Alex is here to exchange ideas off of. Did you work on Threshold with other players at the time to try and make it better? Uh, ultimately, yeah. So uh, a few of the other guys at the Frog ended up uh, playing Threshold. I, I think some of us might have been... My, some, some of the development was probably a little bit independent. Uh, uh, a friend of ours named Scott Scheuer was trying to basically make a Psychotog deck in Legacy that, that ended up being essentially a Black Threshold deck, but instead of Threshold creatures, it had Psychotog. Or grow a dog minus the gush, basically. So that was, uh, so we bounced ideas back and forth off him. And then, yeah, it might have just been the two of us for a little while. And then our friend Ian sort of was was watching his playing thing. And, and, and he said, hey, these decks look really good. Uh, the one thing that doesn't look as good in it is Queer on Triad. Uh, this little 1-1 one, one for two mana that needs to get plus one, plus one counters from you playing spells. Um, and he ended up building the white version, uh, blue-green-white threshold, and ultimately winning, I think, the second Big R's tournament with it. And I believe that day, like, its creature base was just werebears and meddling mages and mystic enforcers, and that turned out to work pretty well for him. So uh, he wasn't playing Nimble Mongoose? I think he might have had them on the sideboard. Okay. I think I remember him liking Nimble Mongoose. I mean, this is sort of where Mongoose yeah. became a card in Legacy. I, right? Yeah, and I think I remember, for, and this might have been wrong in retrospect, I wasn't stoked about mongoose because first i think i was worried about a 3-3 just not being big enough uh, i think part of my concern was that land still was sort of hanging around and uh i didn't want my creatures to trade with mistress factory under standstill or something sure. but around the same time as this this is when goblins was really picking up again um so instead of the combo heavy food chain goblins we were now dealing with this uh sort of board advantage inevitability uh vile goblins deck uh, with all the ringleaders and siege gangs and everything and the Mana Nile between Wastelands and Forts. And Nimble Mongoose uh, turned out to be amazing against Goblins, being a reliable way to answer turn one Goblin Lackey and just being a unkillable blocker for them later on. Uh, so that was that was sort of serendipitous for, for Mongoose. And, and I think yeah. it was Ian's finish at that, that one tournament that basically put it on the map so that by the end of that year, by like November 2005, Grand Prix Philly came along and there were a solid portion of us playing Threshold in that tournament of, of various kinds. Um, including Alex by then, and uh, some three different people made top eight with three noticeably different builds of it. And and at that moment, it was like, that basically defined the metagame at that point. Um, the top decks for the next year or so would be Threshold and uh, Goblins. At least that's how I remember it. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And while that was happening, Alex, how were, how were you doing with uh, your, your brews or your creations? <laughs> Uh, I remember having some mild success with, you know, goofy survival decks. Just because survival is a powerful card, I can play, you know, my, my favorite creatures in it almost. I mean, no, I, I like Jesse said, I had a, a deck that was sort of a, I guess, a slow zoo deck with survival in it as an engine, and I had some success with that. But I think once, you know, I started playing around with threshold and and having to beat goblins. I was. I remember being on threshold for a pretty good amount of time after that. I see. So what you guys are saying is that at that time in '05, it became the battle of the top decks, where it was threshold versus goblins. Is that right? Yeah. And sometimes people would say top three decks, with the the third most common being solidarity, uh, which I suppose was also also being refined over this period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of an interesting situation, though, because it, it its presence could really vary depending on where you were. Um, this is tournaments were still so small this time that like if you were playing in a tournament in northern virginia or in the dc area solidarity was going to be 
a pretty big part of the field simply if only based on people that we know, you know. But if you were somewhere on the West Coast or something, then maybe it wouldn't have been something to worry about. Yes, uh, solidarity, just to define it for anyone who doesn't know, it's uh, instant speed, high tide, which, um, you know, was the, the certainly the first high tide deck played in Legacy and uh, was pretty pretty successful for quite a while. Popularized mostly by David Gearhart. Uh, David, who is part of your playgroup, right? Or the community? Right. Yeah. So how long did this go on for, uh, you know, having kind of these three decks being the pillars of the format? And uh, like how many years did that, and how did that evolve and, and change? Uh, the way I recall, it basically lasted from late 2005 all the way through 2006. And that was that would have been the Stifle or Beb era where <laughs> every... Every tournament, we're just trying to figure out: okay, is, do we need to worry about more more about the mirror or more about the goblins? Uh, which colors should we splash? Uh, pyroclasm is good against goblins, but uh, white gives you source to plowshares, which can handle your opponent's werebears. And you know, we would have all those discussions. I'm kind of blanking on what else was going on with with the the less played decks, but I'm sure there there was development and, and interesting things happening. Yeah, I'm sorry, I can't remember too much either. I mean, uh, we really did focus on Threshold for quite a while. I remember going from red to white to black to four and five color builds in that span of time, I think. Yeah, it, was, it was quite a bit of fun. I, I bet we, I'm pretty sure we never played the seven, same 75 twice in a row. Uh, might not have ever played the same 60 twice in a row. We were just <laughs> always trying to tinker and uh, figure out some way to get an edge. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds like you guys essentially became spikes, right? Where you wanted to play the best decks or the decks that had the best shot of winning and it was just really tweaking the parameters of those decks. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. yeah, I think um, is it, you know, that point that really, really found the joy in trying to, you know, find the edge where we thought other people weren't, you know, which is what everybody's trying to do. But that was what was enjoyable. You know, I think... This is an idea. I don't know if anyone's tried it yet. Let's, uh, you know, we think it might be good for this reason. Let's try it. Or a new card would come out, and we would, you know, let's let's put it in our threshold deck. You know, I think <laughs> Pithing Needle was like that. Uh, Stifle, and later Thoughtseize. When Thoughtseize came out, we immediately built Black Threshold and, and took it to a tournament. This might have been when they legalized the portal sets. Uh, we were very excited about Sea Drake. Yep. So we picked up a bunch of those and, and put them in the Black Threshold deck, which previously didn't have a really good flyer. It sounds like you guys had basically kept up with the Threshold archetype for a good number of years, right? And what what were some of the later printings? I feel like I might know the answer to this, but I have to ask, <laughs> what were some of the later printings and how did that you know change your relationship with the deck and how, and how, how the deck evolved? Uh, well, at some well, point during this time, uh, I think maybe Cold Snap came out, uh, and and I remember uh, when it did, our, our friend Scott uh, asked me to sit down with him and play a few games. He was testing out this card, Counterbalance, for the Mirror Match, and I think he didn't have top at the time, so it didn't seem quite as crazy good as it eventually would be. But I remember thinking, you know, oh, a lot of my cantrips are just getting countered for free. This is this is interesting. Maybe I should remember this. And then I sort of forgot about it for a while, but uh, it, it would eventually come up. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was put into practice uh, at the so later. This was 2007, I guess, when Future Sight came out. Yeah. Uh, is well, that right? 2007. When I think so. Well, so first, printed? what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was at the beginning of that year that I was sort of taking a like the I think the the way the way I felt at the time was that the Goblins deck had kind of 
gotten a little bit more creative or sophisticated, uh, it was always incredibly important for us to be able to stop their aether vials. And for for a long time now, the, the tech to do that was just main deck pithing needles. Uh, but they were starting to, I don't know, be a little more savvy about trying to answer that. Some of them were playing Goblin Tinkerers, uh, although to this day I really don't know how many of them. Uh, but then at, at some point they also started trying to sideboard Chalice of the Void, which is going to be a huge problem for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember we, we sort of had this thought process of, okay, we're, if Goblins is getting serious, then we really want to be playing the red version of Threshold so we can uh, pyroclasm them and so we can have access to good artifact removal if they do try to play so we could just kill their vials and not have to worry about protecting our pithy needles and we can have answers to chalice and that sort of thing. But how do we how do we beat the mirror match consistently? And I think at this point, uh, this might have followed on a period of time where Anwar was pro- trying to port over the uh, next level blue decks from Extended. Uh-huh. And, uh, hadn't had too much success with like the Trinket Mage and, and whatever else was in that sort of deck. Sort of small creature fish style thing with Countertop. But... Uh, we eventually decided, hey, why don't we just sort of build our deck to beat goblins, but also side in counterbalances and tops for the mirror match. Um, and that turned out to work really, really, really well. To which I think Anwar sort of humorously observed, oh, of course, I should have just put these cards in the best deck instead of trying to build a whole new deck. <laughs> but right as we were working on that, there wasn't a new printing, but there was a, an old errata where they changed the wording of the card Flash. Uh, That's right. Which was a whole story we could get into, but it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But it, basically, they had they had spent a round of of errata sort of going over old cards that had been, been been changed for power level reasons. And they decided not to do that anymore. But yeah, they retroactively changed them. Yeah, yeah. So, so they missed, and that was after some kind of drama involving Time Vault and its several wordings over the years. But uh, I think on the first pass, they missed a few of them, notably Flash, which cost two mana says put a creature from your hand into play then pay its mana cost and if you can't sacrifice it which for many many years read reveal a creature and if you can't pay for it put it in your graveyard instead of bringing it into play at all but uh but they changed it back to the way it was printed um and that comboed with protean hulk to create several different ways of winning the game uh, for two mana and two cards which naturally created kind of a it kind of turned everything on its head um Mm -hmm. And so basically for a couple months, we had to kind of take a break from what we were working on and uh, and deal with that. When it happened like a month and a half before a Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was, that was kind of fun, kind of annoying. Um, I mean, we benefited from being part of a community there because we got a call from one of our friends who had been at a pre, uh, what was he at, like a Grand Prix trial somewhere out yeah. in the middle of nowhere with nobody else from our group. But he saw this guy playing a flash deck. And so he calls us up one night. I think we were actually on our way home from another tournament. Yeah. And uh, he calls us up in the middle of the night on the road, and he's like, hey, I just saw this guy playing this crazy deck. I think this is insane. You guys should all get online and buy these cards right now. My first reaction was, no, 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 no. That's not what the card does. They eradicated it. Years ago. <laughs> right. Uh, this disbelief. No, he, he was right. And we did order a lot of cards uh, as, when we got home. But... Uh, Ironically, the one thing we didn't really think about, uh, and what ended up winning that Grand Prix, was putting counterbalance in the flash deck. Yeah, that was Billy Billy Moreno, right? Who won that tournament? Uh, it might or have was been it his deck, deck? But I think it was Steve Saden who won. That's right. That's right. But anyway, all that's I guess kind of neither here nor there. But uh, well, yeah, I, I think it was actually the Sunday of that Grand Prix that Future Sight became legal. So okay. as soon as Flash was gone, we had access to Tarmogoyf, and uh, I think Dredge basically instantly became a thing. With Narcomibas and Bridge from Below. 
So tell me about that, because when Tarmogoyf was first revealed as a card, I'm sure that players had mixed feelings about it, and it didn't turn out to be, at first glance, the powerhouse that it would later be, right? So what was your immediate, what was your guys' immediate reactions upon seeing that card being spoiled? <laughs> it was like, it was pretty hard to uh, evaluate, wasn't it, Jess? Like, I remember thinking, I think this is probably as good as Werebear, and like we we pre-ordered them because we figured they would be good uh, and I thought you know they're not going to be they're not going to be cheaper than this pre-order price so I'll go ahead and pick them up now and that's as strongly as I felt about it <laughs> yeah I, I don't really remember my initial thoughts I think it probably didn't take us very long of experiencing it to yeah. understand that we were going to need to be playing it yeah I think we proxied them and, and started playing with them and realized pretty yeah pretty easily that it's because you know honestly and this is something people may not remember, werebears, it took a while to get to Threshold. If you needed to be attacking with your 2-drop, but you needed 7 cards in the yard to do it, you know, that wasn't happening on turn 3 every game. Or, or just as importantly, blocking. Like, you, right. you can't drop a werebear on turn 2 and block with it, but you can do that with the Tarmogoyf a lot of the time. I mean, you can't even play werebear on turn 2 if the other guy has mountains in his deck, right? He'll just immediately die. Cycle Gem Palm or any burn spell heals it. Whereas a Tarmogoyf, you can often play on turn two with, you know, four toughness. It's a huge difference. So it only took a kind of seeing the card in action for you guys to realize, like, this is absurd, right? This is a, a good attacker. This is a wall. And this is the card that I guess would eventually obsolete goblins in a way, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it, the first part of everything you said there, I agree with. I don't think Tarmogoyf obsoleted goblins uh, single-handedly, but... But yes, to answer your question. What happens after that? I mean, in the development of Threshold, and you guys said, obviously, Dredge became a thing. How, how did the next few years go? I mean, I'm just trying to understand like how these cards evolved and, and, and caused shifts to the, to the metagame. So, so in, in the immediate aftermath of, of the Flash, the Hanging Future Sight coming out, uh, that was when we actually worked on Cephalid Breakfast for a little while. Yeah, which was made possible by, by Tarmogoyf, in a way. And Narcomoeba. Uh, well, and, yeah, Supposedly. obviously Narcomoeba. Uh, yeah, that, that was that was kind of an interesting sort of oddity that uh, our first builds didn't have Tarmogoyf in them. They were just uh, reanimate Karmic Guide, reanimate Kiki Jiki, copy Karmic, uh, copy Karmic Guide, make Sky Hussar, untap things, copy. And, and nowadays there are there are any number of different ways to do it. Uh, I think we had Sutured Ghoul, Phyrexian Dreadnought. That's true. Then we did we did that one, and that was kind of cool because we played uh, Aether Vials. So every once in a while you'd get to cast a Dreadnought and then Vial in the other one in response to the ability and end up with a Dreadnought. Because um, <laughs> you played exactly at some point, two. <laughs> yeah, you, you would you would worldly tutor for the second one if you drew the first one, right? Um, but at some point, I think somebody on the source uh, made us aware of the fact that at some point along the line they had changed the rules on characteristic defining abilities that define power and toughness, uh, such that Tarmogoyf had its power and toughness even if it were in the graveyard. Therefore, a sutured ghoul that exiles a bunch of Tarmogoyfs would be huge. And and also, Tarmogoyf turned out to be great in that deck, partially as like an alternate uh, way to win, partially as a way to just block things, but probably primarily as a way to soak up damage, because the the end core creatures could just if somebody tries to kill them, you redirect all the damage to the Tarmogoyf. And so as long as you play your creatures in the proper order, you can be you, you can pretty much be immune to even like two burn spells, mm -hmm. which is really cool. And it was fun having to call judges and explain to opponents that Suture School, Suture School's reminder text was, was literally untrue. 
Uh, the, <laughs> the, the stars on cards not in play do not equal zero anymore. Yeah, like the the, the card it literally says that on the card as it's printed. <laughs> yeah, this is not true. Yeah, so we played that deck uh, in that form with the Tarmogoyfs at Gen Con that year. But it was the preliminary tournament. So the Gen Con holds, that was, you know, Eternal Weekend is now separate from Gen Con, but it used to be uh, Vintage and Legacy Champs were held at Gen Con uh, every year. And that year in 2000, it was 2007, I think, there was a preliminary tournament the night before the main event, which ended up having like 70-something players. Uh, and Jesse and I played in that event with our threshold decks with Counterbalance in the sideboard. Uh, we ended up doing very well in that event making the finals, which happened at like five in the morning because there was some kind of error in the uh, in the pairings or something at some point that delayed everything. So we came back two hours later to start the main event. <laughs> and, uh, you know, against... It, it's kind of hard, you know, when you do well in a tournament like that, but we had always been planning on playing Cephalid Breakfast in the main event as sort of this, this deck that we wanted to unveil without people wanting to... You know, because it's something that people could obviously hate on if they were ready for it. It's a, very, it's a very flashy deck. It, it felt like the kind of thing people would hate on, even if maybe they shouldn't for their own. Yeah. Uh, but we ended up switching decks and, and playing that in the main event. And I, I didn't do very well, but Jesse top-aided. And, uh, and that was that was a pretty fun you know trip altogether. That was a, showed us the power of counterbalance and threshold. And that was also when uh, the Canadian guys unveiled threshold with Wasteland in it for the first time. Um, it's uh, It was actually... The, the main event was won by... I can't remember his name now. Peter, Peter Olswecki. There you go. Yeah, with actually just straight blue-green threshold with uh, you know a few bounce spells as the only removal spells. Very aggressive deck. Uh, but of course, uh, Dave Kaplan also in the top eight with with what would later become Rug Delver. You know the the proto Rug Delver deck. Um, so Canadian threshold got its name because the pilot was Canadian. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That's wow, I did yeah, not know that. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, I think and those I believe... guys were all based in Toronto, or uh, at least Dave was, I think. I, I the first time we met him, but uh, I believe, according to him, he's basically been playing that exact deck for, I don't know, forever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, at, at least in several Grand Prix before that, I think. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, that may not be his... I, I think he's has other finishes of note with that deck, but that's certainly when you know, we became aware of it, and I, I think when the greater legacy community became aware of it. Uh, because of him and and Olswecki. yeah, that was that was a that was a great week. That was a lot of fun. It was a very interesting situation having two decks that we both thought that we thought were both contenders for the best deck and second best deck that yeah. we didn't think anyone else was really playing in those forums. Yeah, it's not often that happens, right? It just doesn't happen anymore. That's very uh, very special. I want. I know that you guys have been instrumental to some of the data analysis that's been going on for legacy tournaments you guys are known for the articles back in the day series of articles called too much information and i wanted to ask you guys sort of about the genesis of that how did that come about and what were your goals behind it and how was it received basically just tell me what you remember about starting up that series because i i think that series continues to influence a lot of analysis today you know, we just had a GP in Seattle and people were, I think it was Bob Huang who was collecting the top 64. People want to do analysis nowadays on what's happening. So tell me about how you guys sort of were the first ones to pioneer that, what the goals were behind it. 
Well, we didn't actually uh, start the series. That was, um, as far as I know, it was it was just uh, it was started by Jared Silva at Star City, and and for a while there he was sort of like his. If you go back to the first uh, article, he he just says in his intro, you know, it's it's we collect all these deck lists every time, and then we sort of end up throwing them out, and that seems like kind of a waste. So why don't why don't we collect this and and post it for you? And that, and that was just a really cool thing for them to do. That went on for a little while. I, I became aware of it at some point and started sort of voraciously consuming all the all that data. And, and yeah, I think that they started with you know other formats. I think I don't know if they always did legacy. Um, I think I think they did. I was going through it some earlier, and, and it was it's okay. just there. But like as the series went on, they were doing tournaments more and more frequently, and it started to get harder to actually put things out. You know, relatively soon after the tournaments, especially when the the guy doing it was also heavily involved with running the tournaments um yeah it started so, coming out where he would put out one like every month or every two months that would have a bunch of events data lumped together right and yeah, we wanted so. it more frequently than that uh, and so at some point we found him in a tournament and said hey uh i really like this thing you do is, is there any way if, if i don't know how we put it but like you know if, if writing the articles is delaying things i think people could get a lot of value out of just you know having these numbers a little, a little bit earlier. So, uh, so then, we should explain like kind of what it is, right? I mean, it's, yeah, I it's so. basically the the DCI reporter file, which has all of the matchup information tied to DCI numbers. And then what they were doing is they were taking the stack of physical deck lists and actually going through them one by one and tying a DCI number to a deck archetype, and then running it through a bit of software that somebody had created. I wish I knew who that would run through all the DCI reporter information and then come out with a spreadsheet that would show, you know, all the archetypes and the matchups basically part, you know, throw that out into a usable information. And then after that was done, Jared was taking that, going through it and coming up with conclusions and, and writing out an article, you know, to go along with it. And obviously there are several steps along the way there, so I think what Jesse asked was, can you can you put up the data? Can you just put up the spreadsheet after you run the software on it? You know, if, if you you don't have to go through all these steps for this to be useful for us, and we want to see it as soon as possible after a tournament. And I was I was just really excited about this this endeavor in, in general because even though it sounds kind of simple, it it's it was kind of unprecedented. Nobody had really done that before. I, I guess there, there's a lot of work involved in going through like a couple hundred deck lists and figuring out what, what to call each one of them and, and typing that into a computer and mm-hmm. combining it with everything. But uh, I think this this would have been after the survival era. So uh, we, I remember being like very grateful to have this information when when the survival deck uh, with Benfion became uh, incredibly broken. Just every couple tournaments, they would put up this article saying, yeah, this deck won X percent of its matches uh, again. That seems pretty good. We never had that kind of validation before, right? Like we kind of yeah. We we looked at survival initially because of that information, and then we started playing it and started doing pretty pretty well with it, and kept working on it. And every couple of weeks, we'd get one of these articles from Jared that said, "Hey, you know, by the numbers, you guys are right." I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Magic is such a difficult game that it's we all want to talk about it in probability and, and hard numbers, but for it for you to actually get that data to actually work with something that. You know, now I can break this down quantitatively and say, yeah, I think I'm on the right path. It's yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of guesswork in metagaming that's sort of able to sort of take some out of it. Um, so, like, if you had asked me in in 
2008 or something, you know, what does it mean if a deck wins 60% of its matches? I, I, I don't know if I would have had an answer for you. But after reading these articles for a while and then seeing the survival deck come up that, that did consistently win at least 60% of its matchups, uh, I knew based on the previous numbers, that's crazy. And we need to be playing that deck. So anyway, after all that happened and uh, we're getting a little bit, I, I guess, disappointed or frustrating that, that they weren't able to to, to do it all that consistently, we, we, we went up to them and, and Jared's response was basically, oh, okay, um, would you guys want to write it? Uh, and we said, sure. So... I, I, I feel like I feel like we didn't really need to do much or, or add anything by actually writing these articles. Uh, from from my perspective, still just the important part is is getting those numbers. But yeah, basically we would we'd get this data from from the legacy tournaments uh, pretty quickly after they were done, usually, and and we'd uh, be able to write these things up and uh, mm-hmm. be able to to analyze trends as as best we could. In terms of reception, I think it's. I think there are basically two people who ignore it and people who think it's really, really great. I, I was always a little bit uh, surprised and, and maybe even confused or disappointed that like a lot of people, I don't know, it, it seemed like it was a small number of people uh, who were into this kind of thing. But of course, for for those of us that are, it's uh, it's it's pretty important. I don't know. Yeah, I would I, say... I, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think Bob Wong is a good example. I think Bob yeah. is the kind of numbers guy that you know, really values that kind of information. And uh, he's not alone. I think there are a lot of Magic players like that. Um, there are other Magic players who, you know, maybe don't, you know, don't put as much stock in the numbers for this reason or that reason. And, and we would try to talk about in our articles that there are definitely issues with the methodology. I mean, it's not something that gives you clear-cut answers that you should take without any context or, or deeper understanding. But just to get closer to something objective... I think than, you know, anything we had before, is so cool. I, I think it contrasts pretty well uh, with the, uh, other than the, the more sort of intuitive based metagame analysis people do. Um, it was sort of funny occasionally to to, to hear people, sort of, uh, I don't know, make make these claims and predictions about metagames that just actually we can check that. More often than not, they're not really true. Uh, somebody says, "Oh, X won this tournament because it preyed on Y, which was really popular because of the." They can be like, "Well, actually, X did pretty poorly overall in this tournament, and there wasn't that much Y, and and so on." It was, uh, I don't know. It, it was, it was, it felt like we were getting information that really just wasn't available before. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So maybe the article shouldn't have been called too much information. It should have been called just the right amount of information. It should have been the right amount <laughs> to at least dispel the sort of intuitive metagame calls that were not really based on anything right yeah no exactly i think the most frustrating thing while we were doing that was that you know the grand prix that happened during that time we couldn't get the data for and a lot of other tournaments we couldn't yeah typically right sometimes jared uh was able to uh, come up with those somehow (laughs) it's really cool yeah, like he would just convince the judging staff to hand over the pile of deck lists at the end, and then he would go through a thousand deck lists and make it happen. I mean, yeah, that's definitely true. That incredible. It doesn't sound unlike some of the work that's happening today in different pockets, right? Because I know that Julian Knob, who's a, a well-known legacy elves player, he did that for some of the European tournaments like MKM or Bazaar of Moxen, where he... He literally just said, "Hey, hand me over your deck list." You know, it was, it was just, it was. Of course, like they wanted, he, they knew what he was trying to sh- go for, 
but it's not like today it's any more scientific than that right it's just uh people that are volunteers and want to do it they would they do it and hopefully it happens and and i'm and by the way i'm super grateful that you guys took the time to do that back then because i do think it has had quite the influence on the work that came after and still continues to happen today well thank you i mean i'm glad that yeah. uh to think that people got value out of it i you know, I, I, I look back on it and I, I think there's probably a lot more we could have done with it. And, um, you know, maybe if somebody else was doing it, there could have been a lot more that, that they could have done with it. But I, I definitely think compared to now where we don't generally have access to as much information, you know, I, I still think that that type of analysis is, is really what you should be striving for if you want to make informed decisions and, and you know, want to win tournaments, I think, whenever possible that's the the right approach rather than you know intuitive mm -hmm. more holistic thinking it's a, it's a little frustrating that that uh, sort of ended uh, before they'd really ramped up to to the uh, the amount of tournaments that are going on now because there, there are a lot of interesting questions we could probably ask that uh, that are really hard to to do anything with if you only have a tournament a month or so but that if you if you've got something every week with information then, then yeah, there there could be some really interesting things to uh, to figure out in terms of trends and, and time series, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's it's not easy. Like I I, I have uh, uh, on my computer, I, I have a PDF of like 700 decklist images from uh, I guess Eternal Weekend or, or something, you know, one of the tournaments from last year. And yeah, I, I don't think anybody ever uh, had to to wherewithal to sort of turn those into something useful and actionable. Well, it's kind of a passion project for people. So it's like if someone wants to take up the mantle and, and do it, then they can do it. But otherwise, it's there's no systematic way. That's how that's how I'm seeing it, at least. Yeah. You get a lot more value out of it if you have it, if, it, if it's regular. So having a, the data for one event is great, but having it for three events is like much greater than three individual events, if that makes sense. Like the, the sum is greater than, yeah. Because I guess if there is, if there's like, yeah. I'd say if there's one lesson to take from all that is is that there's there's really a lot of noise and and it was pretty pretty clear uh, from looking at uh, numbers from one event to the next you, you really can't take uh, strong inferences from from one event pretty much ever I would say like you, I I really need some some consistent results in, in order to think that these uh, that any conclusions are are really valid yeah definitely uh, it, it it definitely lends it lends it it, it makes you skeptical about any kind of claims about metagame trends or truths because without, yeah, without empirical data to back it up, it's, you know, where are you coming from? Because that, you know, we looking at empirical data, it, it, all, it honestly just looks like the metagame is really difficult to predict. And there's a lot of randomness. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I'd love to seg segue to another question that I've been dying to ask you guys, which is, how do you guys feel about the legacy metagame today? Because I feel like there's a lot of discussion on Reddit, MTG The Source, and various forums where people... We are kind of in this era now where there's a lot of data, but it also means that people are cherry-picking data to make certain claims that may or may not be factual. In light of all the things that are happening and various personalities coming out and saying a certain elf should or should not be banned. <laughs> uh, I'll just leave it at that. How, how, do you, how do you guys view the current metagame? Because you guys have a ton of valuable context. Like you've been 
with this format since it was called Legacy. So I think putting perspective on it is important, but I also just want to get your take on how, how you see things today. Uh, well, I think that the metagame is pretty balanced, honestly. I think uh, there are a, a lot of decks that are vi- are viable. And, I, you know, if you want to get into the discussion about everybody's favorite elf, uh, you know, you have to sort of separate, talk about card ubiquity and, and deck ubiquity. Because those are kind of two different discussions. But I, I think Legacy is is very interactive format. I think you can go to an event and you know, expect to play against just as many different distinct archetypes as ever before. I think the one thing that you can say is that a lot of the archetypes that are in the format today have been around for quite a while. And I think that's sort of in, intrinsic when you have a non-rotating format, that's going to be true. And, you know, Leg- Legacy has been, it's been a competitive format for longer than it ever has been before, which sort of is obvious to say. But, you know, when we started playing way back when, you know, whatever metagame knowledge we had then, uh, it certainly feel, felt more open, but I think that's because it was less competitive. You know, you had a smaller group of people playing with much less at stake, and there was a lot of room to explore. And so that's, it's a little sad that there probably isn't as much room to explore the format now as there used to be, but you can still pick from a, a huge swath of decks, and you can still pick from a huge, you know, the, the biggest card pool to, to modify the deck and, and personalize it if, if your metagame calls for it. And you can go and play, you know, really interesting games. And, I, I you know, if anything, it may be more of a player's format now than a deck builder's format, but I think it's still a great game. Yeah, I, in general, I'm, this does go back to the too much information stuff, I'm, I'm always hesitant to make any kind of claim about a metagame that I haven't seen numbers for at this point. It's, it's that, that whole thing kind of ruined me for making my own uh, sort of analysis. On a personal note, I'm kind of tired of Deathrite, but on the other hand, like I really do not want to see bannings being used on a regular basis to keep the format moving. Like I, I think that would set a pretty bad precedent if that were the only reasoning behind it. So, I don't know. I see no actual reason to think the format's unhealthy, and I have no idea what would actually happen if the card were banned, I have no reason to positively believe that it would end up in a healthier place. So I'm, I'm not I'm not really advocating anything. I mean, I still enjoy playing Legacy on a regular basis. So that's kind of my basic litmus test. And I don't play the same deck week in, week out. So, <laughs> But I don't know. I, uh, you know. I haven't been super successful playing anytime recently either. So I could just be, you know, well out of it. I guess I have to admit that. Well, as spikes or as competitive legacy players would you say that the next time you are trying to win a big legacy event let's say the next grand prix or something like that would the presence of that card would that make you want to use that card in your deck or would you feel like that is a necessary condition for you to to have in your deck in order to win the next big tournament that you want to do really well in. That's hard to say. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's necessary at, at this point, but there, there's a very good chance we'd end up playing it. I think. I don't generally think about things in terms of specific cards to that degree. I would say, Deathrite is a card that exists in several of the most important decks that are out there. And um, you know, if I'm not going to end up playing one of those decks, I'm going to want to play a deck that has a, a plan against those decks. 
So if it seems useful to sort of boil it down to having a plan against Deathrite or playing Deathrite myself, I, I could, I guess I could end up in that space, but that's not how I would frame it probably. Yeah, Does it's that definitely, make sense? yeah, it's definitely an oversimplification. And uh, I, I think it's just the way I'm asking the question is a lot, what a lot of the, the popular magic discourses is about these days uh, for better or worse. But it's like you said, it's more about the overall archetype or deck or the, the overall archetype that you're, you're going for. Right. And then what, what cards what card or cards complement these strategies right more so than any particular right. thing so and i think any metagame analysis is going to be a simplification of sorts but i generally try to go along the lines of archetype rather than cards um i think uh, uh jerry and brian had an interesting discussion about that on the game recently where they were talking about categorizing decks in uh in standard right where they were talking about how they could break it down by individual archetype or they could go even further and categorize different archetypes that shared the, the same powerful cards. I don't know anything about the standard metagame, but I found it interesting because, yeah, you have to sort of decide what where where to draw those lines and how it makes it useful. Right. It's like, it's like am I talking about A or I'm talking about B? Like, don't conflate the two things, right? If I'm going to talk about A, then be consistent and talk about the archetype. If I'm talking about cards and, and bannings, then let's lean in that direction i think that's um that's my understanding of it as well well yeah and if you think that targeting death right is if, if death right generally requires the same type of response from your deck building across multiple sort of archetypes that have death right in them then you can think about it that way and maybe then you're playing an anti-death right deck or strategy but i find that hard to believe because death right is in a lot of decks that have pretty widely ranging strategies it's true that banning a card uh, as opposed to trying to depower an overpowered deck is, I think, a, a hard sell. We were talking about this the other day, and it's it's very rare that they've done that in Legacy. The only things I can think of are Mystical Tutor and uh, Mental Misstep, both of which I think are, are at least arguable decisions. Yeah, and Mystical in particular, I mean, they banned it, sort of their argument was based on the power level of the card, but there, there were two decks particularly that were using it at the time there was reanimator and there was ad nauseum and neither of those decks was being dominant individually uh, or together but you know you, you could still say that those two decks were the problem like it's still a reasonable argument you could make whereas i think i mean i guess with death right you could talk about the the pile decks and the the delver decks and try to sort of set aside all the other decks that play it but Again, I think then when you're talking about a deck, see, that's the thing. When you're talking about a deck being too good, that's when you, you ask, well, where's the data to support that? What's your reasoning to, to support that? Because we've had decks that were too good in Legacy before, and you know, in some cases we actually had the numbers to say that, that yes, they definitely were in an objective sense that seems to support that they were too good. But if that's not the argument that you're making with Deathrite, if you're saying something else, then like Jesse said, there's there aren't, aren't many cases where that's been done before, and it's an interesting precedent, and I don't... I don't know that it's the best one to be setting. Yeah, I think precedent is important. Not going overboard with drastic bans is important. I also think that in today's discourse, there's a lot of first-level thinking, which is very surface-level, which is saying that a card appears in X percent of decks or top eights. Therefore, it is a ban candidate. And that, to me, just seems absurd. Without regard for the context, the conversion rates, and archetypes, and other things it just seems like a very elementary way to look at things and trying to draw some kind of conclusion that 
may not actually be there in my opinion. So I guess that's what I will say about that. Yeah, right. That's a is that a banning criteria? The the ubiquity of a card just on a pure quantitative, you know, level? Because if it is, I, I don't I don't think that that's obvious. And we don't even have that in terms of how many people are playing the card. We we have no real knowledge. All we can really do is point at top eights and top sixteens. So so I think that just underscores. I mean, well, in my mind, everything underscores this. But uh, I think it sort of underscores the uh, how much of a shame it is that we don't have access to the, the kind of data we used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if if uh, I, I would suggest that people should uh, might I don't know uh, do what they can to. to could be a call to action. Complain, here. complain yeah. more. Yeah. yeah. Complain more. Yeah. Complain more and hopefully do more as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go to Wizards and say, why? What are you doing? Right. I mean, there's been a pretty good effort on uh, on the Reddit, on the MTG Legacy subreddit, to uh, collect deck lists and data following That's major true. tournaments. And it's, uh, I think it's panned out a couple of times. Yeah, it sort of comes and goes. There's a, a lot of people, people try. But yeah, no, no real, like you said, no, no real systematic. Uh, structure that's uh, that's behind that sort of thing mm-hmm. i'd like and, to call out the people behind it i really don't know their their handles or their names but thank you guys for for doing that <laughs> <laughs> the unsung heroes yep yeah i'd love to conclude with one final question and the question is going to be who do you guys think are going to be or who are the key people driving legacy forward today it could be someone in your circle it could be people online it could be Anybody that you can think of. If I had to ask you for just people that come to mind, Alex and Jesse, how would you guys answer that? So I have absolutely no idea. Um, I've been out of the loop with Legacy. I don't uh, be hard-pressed to name uh, anybody who's been doing well lately, honestly. So I would not put myself as an authority on, on this at all. Well, I've got some ideas. I think, um, you know, I'm not really anymore in the loop, but I feel that going forward it's really you know two groups of people i think that uh you know the the star city grinders that have really succeeded for themselves back when star city was doing legacy tournaments and i'm thinking of like uh reed duke and you know brian bronduin these guys that have had success across all formats and uh you know still have played a lot of legacy i think that some of them are going to be very very important i mean they've help to define legacy archetypes and uh, you know sort of legitimize legacy as a, as a competitive magic format just like all the others and you know especially I mean those two guys I especially like to think of as you know good examples of, of sort of I don't know ambassadors of not not of legacy but they're just you know good you know sportsmen and I think that they could uh, be influential in that regard but I also think that content creators, um, you know, like you, James, and the Brainstorm Show guys, I mean, that's that's a sphere that's really been growing a lot, and I, I see that that's probably going to be important going forward, too. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I hope you guys continue to play Legacy, and I hope to see you guys out in one of the larger tournaments this year. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, definitely. Thank you guys so much for your time, and uh, it was pleasure talking to you it was a pleasure and an honor and uh i love what you guys have done for legacy and hope you guys will continue to do awesome stuff thank you yeah thank you and thank you so much for having us on i mean i feel uh humbled to be a part of this this is you know been a hobby for us and 
had a lot of fun of it with it over the years and hope to have a lot more fun with it. Anyway, thank you very much.